Hi, and welcome to the Productize Podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, you can find the Productize Podcast from your favorite podcast player app, and you can subscribe from there. This is our show where we talk with productizers and innovators and cover the stories behind great product experiences and why it matters to innovators and makers like you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Productized Podcast. My name is Teresa, and I will be your host today. For the past few years, we have been doing a series of interviews with product innovators, successful makers, and entrepreneurs. Our mission is to inspire, connect, and empower more people to get into product roles and help you to be a better professional. Today, we have Lauren Isaacson, a market and UX research consultant from Vancouver, British Columbia. She began her career doing research and brand strategy for digital ad agencies in Los Angeles, California, but left that world behind and gravitated towards in a career in research after moving to Canada in 2009. Since then, she has been an in-house research team of one of the Motion Canada and Talos Digital and interim leader of the market research department of BC's Hydroelectric Utility, a subcontractor for agencies such as Blink, Macadamium and Applause, and a direct consultant for small startups, national organizations, and anything in between. So welcome, Lauren, and thank you for being with us today. How are you? And what time is now here in Canada? <laughs> I'm good. It's eight o'clock in the morning. Thank you for asking. And yeah, so this is the, the very beginning of my day. So good morning for you. We are almost finished our day. So it's good to have you here. How have you been dealing with the COVID pandemic uh, for the past few years? How is this in the situation in Canada? And how have you had time for any adventures so far? Well, it's been an adjustment. The adventures have been local. So we did take a small trip to the interior high desert for a couple of days. We've been doing some hiking. My husband has been taking advantage of it. He's, he's taken up uh, kayaking for us. It's also been an adjustment because it used to be that I was the only one who worked from home. And now my husband is also. And because of that, we had to move. So we are one of those silly people who moved houses in a pandemic market because we needed office space. So now we both work from home and we do it somewhat comfortably. My husband's in the middle of, of setting up his office. He gets his desk today, so he won't be working from the kitchen table. And I am working on getting our new place decorated to a place to a point that it feels like home and not just a, not just a space to live in. Yeah, sometimes not moving, it's not a bad thing. So I think it's a, a positive thing. Great. And you have a mission in your life and in your company with environment that I think it inspires us to be better in our actions too and proves that we can help our planet in small things. So what is this idea of, of yours and how did it start? Well, the environment is something that I've always cared about in one capacity or another. For me, it was you know, it wasn't something that was always top of mind. You know, I grew up in Los Angeles, everybody drives and, you know, walking isn't a, isn't a big deal. And, and the environment suffers because of that. The smog is, is huge. Traffic is, is huge. Uh, pollution is, is a very big deal. But I began to kind of realize my own contribution to that. And I also began to understand that individual contributions are minor compared to corporate entity and to corporate entity and more large corporation detrimental effects on the environment. That doesn't mean that 
I'm not about whataboutism. I believe that everyone can, can do something and should take responsibility for what they do. And so for that, you know, I started when I was living in LA, I went to a smaller car. I tried to take public transit more. When I moved to Canada, I got rid of my car completely and took public transit all the time. And I also started working with volunteering and being on the board of an environmental nonprofit focused on sustainable transportation. And I've been with that organization for the last 11 years on their board. Since I started my company, one of the things is that I started to do was I became a member of 1% for the planet. I thought it was a way to kind of make that, that stance on the environment, but also what I need to do more official. It was a visible commitment on my part that this is what I will do with the money that I earn and in a way that I think matters. So, um, so yeah, that's what I've been doing. And I post who I contribute to. I don't post how much, but I do say, you know, this is, these are organizations that I've contributed to over the years. So yeah, I, I do like being a member of 1% of the planet. I think it's a good organization to be a part of and, and you can don't have to be a company to be a member of 1% for the planet. You can be an individual member or you can be a corporate entity member and they both work. Really inspiring. I think who is listening to us probably will get to know what is this 1% for planet. Talking about uh, more about you and your professional life. So how did you get into market and UX research? What do you find most exciting of it? I started when I was working at ad agencies and I was what was known as an account planner. So as an account planner, you're doing research and brand strategy. The brand strategy It wasn't something that I ever felt really competent at, but the research part I was very good at. So for me, when I was done with the advertising world and I wanted to move on, focusing on research felt like a natural pivot for me, something that I knew that I could be very good at and something that, that I felt really good about doing, finding answers rather than trying to, to make up something for, for something that doesn't actually exist. So it felt more tangible, more real, like something that I could do. And when I was interviewing for jobs, when people asked me, like, what are you passionate about? And what makes you passionate about your job or anything like that? I'm just like, I am passionate about competency. It is easy to love your job when you know you're good at it. And so that is kind of why I'm passionate about research. That's why I love doing it. That's why I love doing qualitative research and talking to people and finding the stories and finding like what's going to help my clients serve their clients, serve their, their customers better by listening to people and understanding the threads and what's the commonalities between and what are the things that, that they can do that are going to meet those challenges. I love what I do because I'm good at it. So let me guess, that's why Career Research was born, because you love <laughs> what you do. Exactly. So, a little bit. Yeah. Basically, I was trying to find a job. So I was laid off from the last company that I worked for. And in this, this world of research, I try to tell people, I'm just like, this is not a stable career. It goes up and down according to the, the economy. And so you have to be prepared for that. Yeah, I was trying to find a job. And there are very few full-time jobs in Vancouver in a research capacity. And so while I was trying to find a full-time job, I started taking on contracts. And then it got to the point where I was taking on enough contracts that I didn't need a job. And that was very new for me. And so then I just stuck with it because I'm just like, I kind of like this. I kind of like not having a job. It's great. Great. Great point of view. So here on Curio, we, you work with companies and agencies. So what are the main needs that you find on working with them? And 
if you feel a big difference between small and big agencies, companies, teams, all of them? Yeah, I would say smaller companies and startups, usually they are not quite as certain as to what their needs are from a research capacity. They tend to be more general and broad in their questions, and they tend to maybe just focus on the usability portion of it and not really on understanding the the problem first. Whereas when you're working with larger organizations, there tends to be more of a professionalism to the research approach. They go out, they are very clear in their brief as to what their needs are, and they go and they get proposals from multiple agencies. They go with the proposal they think is best, and then they start the process there. And so it's already been established what their needs are. Usually when I'm approached by smaller organizations, there's a step in between where I'm just like, okay, let's have a conversation about what you want and what's actually going to help you. And then I will come up with a way to get to that. But usually the questions that I'm first brought in with are very broad, too broad to really effectively research. So that's that's typically the differences I see between smaller companies and larger companies. And I think you, you sort of question, answer my, my next question. That is, why do you think that the UX research is so important and most in product? So user experience research and market research, I am of a minority opinion that there's a lot of overlap between those two fields. And a lot of what I'm asked to do in a UX research capacity can very easily fit into market research. For instance, right now, a lot of what I'm doing, I am testing concepts to see whether or not they resonate with the target audience and also trying to understand what their needs are. That could easily fit into market research. There's no reason why I can't call that market research, but I'm doing it on behalf of the UX research agency, on behalf of the UX research team. So yeah, that's so that makes it UX research. Market research is important when you are a young startup because you want to understand the problem space. You also want to understand what is the potential of that problem space and whether or not you are on the right track. Because you may see a problem, but that may not be a problem that is going to lead to a profitable business long-term. And so understanding that first before you start is great, because that means that you are not going to put in, you are not going to be throwing good money after bad. And the same is true after the fact. Research is really great for trying to figure out where you should put your money, where you should put your bets on, because you want to be making informed decisions not gut feelings, not best guesses. You want to know. Everybody like cites Steve Jobs as saying that he he doesn't need research because he knows his target market better than anybody. That was not true. He had a very robust market research department and Apple still does. Their marketing UX research department is massive. They know their customers because they make an effort to know their customers. Facebook, I know. They have an army of researchers that when they do Agile, they have an army of researchers and sub and contractors and agencies who are attacking that problem all the time. And so that is, they are not making guesses. They are making hypotheses. They are testing those hypotheses and they are making decisions based on the results of those tests. And so do you think that you can consider that a research is at some point done? Or how do you measure your success, for example? Oh, how do, oh, well, how do I measure my success? <laughs> As a contractor, my success is that I'm asked back. For me, that's my ROI. From an internal standpoint, I feel like a lot of things in ROI, it's magic. It's, you know, you're 
you're, it's, it's, it's a sleight of hand. Nobody knows exactly how much of their effort contributed to X profitability. And like when I was at TELUS, that was the thing that I was asked a lot. You're just like, you know, you need, they were just like, how do we calculate ROI on this? And I'm just like, every piece of research I do is utilized and spread out among so many different teams and so many different products. I have no way to measure my time and investment against all of the insights and what those insights informed in a direct way that I feel confident saying, yes, this is how much I contributed to to the success of X, Y, and Z product. I don't know. I can't tell, but I know that the research I did helped refine the decisions being made and people spent less time pursuing projects or opportunities that weren't going to lead anywhere or were the wrong choices. Hopefully I did that, but can I put a firm number to that? I don't think I ever can. And I think that most people who do put ROI on things, while I think it's a necessary part of being being part of the, the business experience, I think a lot of it is is just, it's not real. It's just magic. And what do you, unfortunate, yeah. <laughs> what do you find the most difficult when you run a study? So you have lots of research methods and how do you reach the right person in the right way for the, the study you are doing? It always depends. I think that recruiting is something that is often taken for granted and people don't understand how difficult it is to get the right people, especially B2B projects, B2B pro- getting people who have a business expertise and who might use your product, that's usually very expensive. They cost a lot to get into the room to work on your study. Business to consumer is a lot is easier, but you still are looking to get the right people. And it always depends on who your target audience is. And sometimes there's a lack of appreciation as to how hard that target audience is to reach and how what is the size of that target audience. So there have been some projects where we set out to interview very specific people and in a certain amount of time, and we've had to extend that time, or we have had to soften the requirements of who we are trying to talk to in order to get enough people into the room. I am always someone who, the more specific you are, the more I would recommend that you hire a a professional recruiter to help you. And a lot of times that professional recruiter will look at what you're doing and go, that's impossible. There's no way we're going to do that. So we need to adjust. And so they save you. They save you from spending a lot of time on money and something that isn't going to pay out. And so I love working with professional recruiters. If it is more general than working with, say, a more self-service thing, like I think there's uh, user interviews and respondent.io, and there's some others that have come up that I'm blanking on. But um, uh, Askable, I think, is, is another one. You can use those and you will save a lot of money because you're not paying a person to help you coordinate and find people. And it's more self-serve. But... And I have run into this where if you get too specific, you can't find those people. And so you have to be less picky about who you want to let into the room for the study. And that may mean that the results you're getting are not as good as you would like. And that happens. And on your experience, do you find it is different between a digital or a physical product uh, running the UX research study? It's pretty rare that I'm asked to test a physical product. It's usually a digital product. I have talked to people about testing physical products. Like I, back in the day, like 
one of the agencies I worked with, it was for a car company. And so, yeah, we would test cars. They would bring these these floor models in and of prototype cars and have people just kind of like walk around and tell the and tell them what they thought about the car. There's probably not much of a difference from a research capacity aside from logistical. It's getting the products into their hands so that they can touch it and see it and feel it and use it is a bit more difficult. Whereas if you're testing a digital product, it's usually just a matter of them sharing their screens. And so that's really easy. You can do that from anywhere and it's super cheap. There are alternatives now. AR and VR are becoming much more common. There are research services out there that specialize in AR and VR and will help translate your product into an AR or VR um, environment. And then people can test that from anywhere, depending on what the capacity is. So sometimes there are virtual reality shopping environments, or sometimes it is an AR product test where they have translated the prototype product into a 3D model. And then people use their phones to kind of like just get a sense of the size of the product, how it, what the size of it is in relation to their hand or relation to their room or anything like that and what the color is and what the texture is like. And they can do that through AR. And that is, that's helpful, um, but it's still, it's a very nascent technology. It's still in kind of the beginner stages. Not a lot of people use it yet, but it is available. And especially now when we're all trying to social distance, having those options to use virtual reality and augmented reality is a way to overcome those challenges. Yeah. So you have to always stay in line with the trends. Do you have any specific way to do it, to, to find the latest innovations, the latest trends for your work field? For tools and things like that, yeah. I mean, basically, there's research newsletters that I'm a part of, that I'm on, that often give webinars that are, you know, sponsored by the company. And so they're giving like a, they're, they're like bringing in someone who used the product and had a really successful project because of it. And it's very biased, but it is a good way to know what's out there. And then I'm also part of an organization called the Qualitative Research Consultants Association. And they have a thing called, I'm not sure what the official term is. I call them demo days, where it's a two-hour webinar where they get a bunch of service providers. And each service provider gives a 10-minute presentation with a five-minute Q&A. So very short. It's basically just like, here's what we do, and this is why we're special. Here's, ask us some questions, and then they move on to the next one this is what we do and this is why we're special and same thing. And so that's a really great way to get a sense of what's out there without in a way that isn't as aggressive as say a webinar or going to, or having to like actually reach out and, and have a, a meeting with a supplier because then you get on their list and then they never leave you alone. So it's, so it's a good way to know what's out there without having to make any kind of commitments. Yeah, Sure. You will be a speaker in our productized masterclasses on the May 28th with a talk chasing rabbits, turning research insights into informed decisions. So you kind of talked about this, but do you want to tell us a little bit more about it? Just a sneak preview of, of your talk? Sure. So as a contractor, as someone who consults on this, and so companies come to me, they have a research question. I do my very best and I'm usually successful at answering that question. In fact, normally very successful at answering that question. So then I give them like a huge stack of insights. I'm like, okay, here you go. Here's my recommendations. And there's a lot of them. And then I like hand it off and I'm like, it's been great. Thank you for the money. I'm gone. Bye-bye. 
And so that's, that's a typical handoff. And so that's usually how that works. And so they're left with this huge stack fence. And they're just like, this is, they're overwhelmed. They're like, I, I, what do I do with this? Sometimes I am asked, okay, what are next steps? What should we do about this? And I'm just like, well, that's really up to you. You know your business. You know what matters. You know what you can pursue. You know what's going to lead to the biggest payoff. But there still needs to be some guide rails. So sometimes I can help in a capacity where we're workshopping the results and we're asking how might we questions. And then we're doing, and then we're trying to figure out, okay, in the room together, what are some good next steps we can make off of these research insights? And part of that is recognizing that not every research insight is worth pursuing. And that is an internal decision. That is not my decision. That's something that the company has to make on their own because they know their company and what they can do and what's probably going to lead to the biggest payoff. And so in the talk, I have some options. So some of it is workshopping. Some of it's doing more research. Some, and then some of it, and then have quite a few things on basically decision structures. So ways to analyze the results in a more objective way and figuring out like, okay, based off of these criteria, these are the ones that we should pursue. And these are the ones that we should kind of table. And these are the ones that we should leave behind. So I have a few things on that, on basically what to do once you have this big stack of insights, how do you carry that to actionable steps? And that's insightful. <laughs> so on May 28th, Lauren Jackson will be our speaker and you can join us. You have a chat here on YouTube and Facebook if you want to reach for some questions. We are almost ending our conversation, but we still have some questions for you. So Lauren, now let's leave the research and market because I guess you have other passions. When you are not working, what do you do? What are your passions, your projects? Do you have extra work? Do I have extra work? I would say running my business is extra work. Let's see, what do I do? In non-pandemic years, my husband and I were avid travelers. So we've been to, gosh, we've been to almost every continent, which has been great. So yeah, we've been to Europe a few times. Portugal is definitely on the list. Our most recent trip was, it was my bucket list trip. We did a horseback riding safari in South Africa and we went to Johannesburg and Cape Town. And that was, that was great. Really enjoyed that. Japan is one of our favorite places to visit. We love going to Japan and uh, we love to eat. So my husband's an amazing cook. I am a less amazing cook. I like the process, but I'm very happy to let him do it. So I've started like, started being more honest with that and going, okay, well, Yes, I like to cook and I like the process, but I actually really like to eat my husband's cooking. That's what I actually really like to do. Let's see, what else? Um, I like being outside. I like going hiking. I'm not that athletic. I do enjoy riding my bike to get around. I find that to be a really great thing to do. Right now is a wonderful time of year. It was cherry blossom season. And it's just, we're getting to the point where it's like, it's all, all the trees were pink. And then it was uh, pink snow season where all the blossoms are falling. And now it's like pink slush season where all of the blossoms and petals are kind of like turning to brown on the ground. So that's a very brief, very lovely time of year. So now let's see, what else do I like to do? Um, you do yoga? I know that. I do. <laughs> uh, yeah, a friend of mine, she is uh, an Iyengar yoga instructor and she teaches an online class twice a week. I do only once a week because the other one is at 9 a.m. on a Saturday. And my husband and I don't even know what, if 9 a.m. on a Saturday actually exists. So yeah, I do do some yoga. I would do it every day if I could, but it's it's harder when I'm in the middle of a project to, to find the time to, to do that. 
Do you have a great work-life balance or not so? It's hard to have a good work-life balance when you really love your job. So yeah, my husband, he does say, you know, you work a lot. You probably work more than I do. And I'm just like, that can't be true. And he's just like, no, you're like working all the time. And I'm like, yeah, I guess you're kind of right. So yes and no. I do work a lot, but I also kind of own my time, which is really nice as a freelancer. So I can take off time to, to do what I need to do. And as long as the work gets done, everything's good. That's something I really like about being independent is that I'm not beholden to anybody else's schedule, which I appreciate. Yeah. And do you do you envision something for the future? Let's say in the next five years, do you have any plans on your bucket list? We definitely want to travel again. Italy's on the list. I think it's high time that we've been, that we went to Italy. So after COVID's done, I think near term, my husband wants to do a road trip on the East coast of Canada. We haven't explored that very much because it's farther away than you think. And it's actually pretty expensive to go from one end of the country to the other. But yeah, it seems like now, since we can't really go many places, exploring the East coast of Canada is probably now's the time. Yeah. So you are most than welcome to come to Portugal too, if you want. <laughs> What are the essential characteristics that someone who wants to start a business needs to have? I don't know. That's a really good question. For people that I know, I, mean, I don't know that many entrepreneurs. I know one who was moderately successful. She's just, she's a very special person. I mean, she's just very solid, very hands-on, extremely capable, like very trustworthy. From my capacity, if you want to start an independent business, if you want to become an independent contractor, Something that I warn people about when they are thinking about doing this is that they need to be able to, to withstand about a year and a half of unstable income. And I have, and at first I thought it was just me. I thought that I was really bad at this. I thought that I was, because that first year and a half, it sucks. You are, you don't know where the money is going to come from. And you're just, you're blind in a dark room and you're just grasping at any lever and just like, I know the money lever is here somewhere, but I don't know where. And occasionally you get lucky and you pull one and you're just like, oh, great money. Maybe I'll just keep pulling that. And you try and find other levers that wind up in money, but you just never know where you're pulling until that year and a half. And then you start to understand, oh, these are the levers that will result in money. And I thought it was just me at first. And then I talked to another friend of mine who also started a consulting business. And, she's, and she was just like, God, that first year and a half. And I'm just like, oh my God, yes, that first year and a half. It's terrible. And so when people start and just like, you have to understand that this is the reality. You are going to go through a year and a half of very unstable income. And so if you can get through that, you're going to make it, but you need to be able to get through that. And for me, I was really lucky when I got laid off. I got laid off with six months severance. I've never seen that before in my life. I also had a husband. Well, actually at the time he was taking a break. And so we were both unemployed together, which wasn't ideal. But I also, you know, last year it was really hard. So I had about six months where I didn't have any work at all. That was rough, but I also was prepared for that. So I had a cushion of about like a decent cushion that I could rely on. I also got a loan from the government that helped keep me going. It would have been a lot harder without that. But I also know that worse comes to worse. My husband has a great job and it's not going anywhere. And so I am privileged in the fact that I know I'm going to be okay, but I am prepared to weather a significant storm. And last year was a significant storm. And so now I'm trying to rebuild off of that. Do you think the same qualitative and quantitative research techniques and analysis can be applied in the same way in UX marketing and advertising? Yes. 
Yeah, they absolutely can. So, uh, so yeah, if you have the skills, you can cross apply it, no problem. And I tell people this all the time. I'm just like, it's not, a, it's once you have the skills, all you need to do is you are applying the same skills to different objectives and you are always meeting those objectives, but you're using the exact same skill set to meet them. You're using it in different ways, but you're using the same skills. So I think there's, there should be a lot of fluidity between UX, CX, and MRX. I think that I roll my eyes when every time there's like a new pair of X's that comes up. And I'm just, cause I'm just like, it's just, it's the same thing. Same thing. You're just trying to meet different stuff. You're using the same skills. And I think, unfortunately, from a, say, a staffing perspective, I think it's a way of gatekeeping because it's a way of bifurcating people who have very specific experience. And so it's really hard to cross-pollinate. It's really hard for people who are new into fields but have very firm skill sets in other areas to enter into, um, say, UX or CX. And that was, that was my experience when I first started was uh, people would look at me and just go, you have lots of experience as a researcher, but you don't have any UX experience. And I'm just like, I am really sure I can do this work. I am 100% sure I can do this work. But no one's going to hire me because I didn't have UX on my resume. And I totally got that. So I found an agency who didn't care. And they started using me and they were able to, and that was my way of putting UX on my resume. And honestly, it's not like I'm using a different skill set at all. I'm using the same skills I was using as a market researcher. I'm just applying to that. Thank you, Lauren. It was really inspiring talking to us. Do you have any suggestions for us, any book you would like to recommend? So for people who are looking to hire a consultant or an agency, there is a book by Catherine Korostoff. And I believe I sent you a list of some recommendations. So there's a book by Catherine Korostoff called How to Hire and Manage Marketing Research Agencies. And that's a really great book. And it's a short read. I mean, it's a thin book, but it has really great advice on like how to narrow down specifically what you want to get out of this, how to select a good agency partner, how to manage the research process and what you should be expecting from that research process. And just because it says market research on the title doesn't mean that it can't apply to UX research. It totally can. Another thing is probably there's Naked Statistics. Um, I forget the author, but Naked Statistics is one because it basically gives you just a really good way to understand the language of statistics. There we go. So yeah, How to Hire and Manage Market Research Agencies by Catherine Korostoff. Great book. There's Naked Statistics. That's also a great book because you should understand stats. You shouldn't just come in and say, oh, well, this is bigger, therefore it's better. And it's just like, mm, there's more underneath that. You should understand the language of stats. And especially since statistics and data rule so much of our decisions these days, understanding statistics is a good thing to do. And it's written in a really great way. My father is a surgeon and he's, and he's just like, all of these kids, they're all talking about like data decisions, statistics, and I really don't know what the hell they're talking about. And I'm just like, okay, you should read this book. And he was so glad. He was just like, thank you so much. I totally got it. That book was written so well. And read it multiple times because this is because you should know, be able to know this and speak to it well. Oh, it's another book that I would recommend. There is UX Strategy by Jamie Levy. That's a really great one. And it basically goes through because I read that and I was just and like it was some kind of like Stengali thing of like of how UX strategy works. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to learn so much of this. And I'm just like, that's a pretty standard research process. <laughs> 
So, and there were some things like she was doing more guerrilla tile research, but I was just like, I was just like, yeah, that could, uh, that could go really well. So yeah, UX, re- UX strategy is a good one. Don't know if I had others, but those are a good, good three that you should probably read. Yeah. And we will share your, your list of recommendations on our Medium channel, on our Excellent. Medium post. So thank you very much. It was very inspiring talking to you today. And thank you for being with us today, Lauren. 